Happy Canada Day, long weekend. We have uh, a number of our, our, our people are traveling uh, on, on the long weekend. Maybe some of you are traveling, and that's why you're here on the long weekend. And it, I think that traveling has, has changed. We've become a little more wary since 9-11. Even though it didn't happen in Canada, it's, it set off some things that uh, have made all of us a little more cautious, a little more vigilant, uh, wherever we're traveling, and, uh, uh, and that's just a, a reality of, of, uh, of our world today. Uh, it wasn't just 9-11 that, that happened. Uh, March 11, 2004, there was uh, 10, uh, 10 bombs that exploded in Madrid, Spain, killing almost 200 people, injuring another 1,800. And then just two months after that, there was a... Uh, uh, another scare, this time in Philadelphia. Uh, there was a conductor for the Pennsylvania Transit Authority who was uh, doing some, some routine inspection and discovered an electronic transmitter on the tracks inside the uh, Philadelphia's 30th Street station. So he finds the, uh, the transmitter obviously uh, very concerned and worried. Uh, within a very short amount of time, the Homeland Security was on uh, uh, on, on the ground, and uh, FBI was there swarming with investigators trying to figure out what was happening. Uh, they soon determined that there was actually a motion detector attached to the transmitter and that it was sending a signal somewhere nearby. People were trying to figure out what it, what it was and, and uh, who might be responsible, and into this swarm of investigators trying to determine what was going on, Finally, uh, somebody stepped forward. It was a, uh, a, a mechanic who admitted to installing the transmitter, and people wanted to know why. Uh, was he somehow connected with Al-Qaeda? Uh, was he um, maybe had a terrorist uh, uh, goal that was completely unrelated to that? Uh, was he a disgruntled employee trying to get back at the... Uh, his, his, uh, his employers and, and somehow uh, cause mischief that way. What they realized uh, as they spoke uh, at length with him was that it was none of those things. Actually, what had happened was he was a mechanic working the graveyard shift, and in order to have a better sleep, what he had done was install a motion detector that set off a little alarm in his workplace so that when his supervisor was coming along the tracks, he could be um, quietly woken from his sleep. And just as he was arriving, he'd be, look like he was fixing things and working really hard. And uh, in fact, uh, he would spend night after night sleeping well and going about his day. And, and uh, that was just the reality of uh, his solution to how he could uh, approach his work. When I think of that, I think many of us, I think, realize that work is not all that it's intended to be. That work could be so much more than what many of us uh, experience of it. And so we, we have many coping strategies. Not many people um, install motion detectors with little alarms to, uh, to, to uh, alert us to our supervisor's presence. But we can do different things to play games on the job. Uh, we can uh, do different things as we're, uh, as we're approaching our work. We can, 
we can approach it with drudgery. We can approach it with kind of, uh, I just don't like this. I'm going to give my bare minimum. Or, or we can be the supervisor that is making work a drudgery for many people that we're responsible for. As Christians, we know that it's different. And yet we find ourselves sometimes in, in companies or in settings where it's, we know it's broken and we can't fix it and we can't fix other people. Um, and yet we know ultimately God wants to uh, wants us to change the things that we can change. And what we can change is ourselves and the attitude and the uh, approach that we bring to our work. And so that's what I want to do as we come to the end of this series in, uh, as we've been looking at, at work and asking God to transform our career, we're coming to the teaching of the New Testament and trying to understand what it is that God calls us to, how God would call us to to, to make work different. And, and what we see in today's passage is really an invitation to turn our work into an act of worship, that we can glorify God by what we do uh, and uh, in, in, in so doing, give a testimony to the, the faith that is inside us and often unseen. We can make it seen and visible by the way we approach our, uh, our jobs and our responsibilities. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me uh, to Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verses 22 uh, to chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3.22 to 4.1. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrong, wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants justly, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. Now, when the New Testament stock, talks about servants and masters, it does so because almost everyone in the Roman Empire would find themselves in one of those two categories. Uh, it was common to have uh, either, either uh, servants that, that reported to you or you being under the authority of a benefactor and having, uh, having those responsibilities. Uh, they say that at, uh, at, at its height, one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were serving as slaves of some kind. And so this was a huge part of uh, the, the patterns that people found themselves as they approached this thing called work. Obviously, we're not in that world. None of us are, are serving in quite uh, the same capacity. But as you dissect the context, there are some significant principles for how we can approach uh, the work that God would have us uh, uh, involved in, and specifically how we can turn work, what started off as seemingly just a job, just a thing that we do, into an act of worship and in our faithfulness to God. The first way it does that in showing us is in calling us to show devotion even to those who are unworthy of it. It starts with this call to the employees calls to, to uh, the, the servants in our passage. 
and, and showing us that how we relate to those whom God has put in authority over us can be a reflection of our faith in God. We're called to show devotion even to those who are unworthy of it. We, we, we get that starting off uh, already in verse 22, where it charges bondservants with obedience in everything. It's this all-encompassing statement. See, faith in Jesus has set them free. They're free from their sins. They're free from their past. They're not free, though, from their obligations in the world. We're called to show devotion to those who have authority over us, that there is a sense in which God has placed authorities over us, and when we recognize that he is the one that has put this person there, we show our love for him out of our devotion to those whom he has placed over us. And it's not some halfway, bare minimum, set the alarm off when he comes, comes looking. You, you, you get that in, uh, in, in the phrase, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. There, there is to be this sense of... Uh, what you see is what you get. I'm, uh, when, I'm, when someone is watching me, when someone is not watching me, there isn't uh, a di- disconnect between the, uh, between the behavior. For the, for the worker in, in, in Philadelphia, the temptation was, when someone's not looking, I can take a nap. For, for many of us, the temptations are different. Uh, probably the biggest one today is digital distractions, Right? I think they say that 90% of people admit to regularly checking their social media while they're on the job, quote-unquote, on the job. Many confess to doing it excessively. And so while it looks like they're working really hard at their job, they're really working really hard at their Facebook posts and their Instagram accounts. This is calling us to do something different than that. Even stay-at-home parents can let screens come between them and the, God, the, the job that God has called parents to do in nurturing and discipling the children that God gives us. God charges us with devotion, a devotion to those he's put over us. And putting our hearts into our work is one of the ways that we can make uh, a, a, an act of work an act of worship. I want you to see what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I want you to notice that it does not say uh, that your, your masters are worthy of all honor, because as we experience, that's often not the case. He says, Regard them as worthy of all honor. You are to treat them as if they were worthy of all honor, even though you and I know that often they're not. And certainly in the first century, if you were thinking often about uh, your, your slave owner, your, they, they were not worthy of all honor when there were many things about them that you couldn't uh, instantly respect or appreciate about them but it says to treat them as if they were worthy of all honor. And moreover, it says that if we don't do that, that we dishonor God. It dishonors the name of God because people are making conclusions about what we believe by what we do and how we respond to those whom God has placed in authority over us in our our jobs and the work that we do 
is ultimately a reflection of how we love and respond to our Savior. It's interesting when I look at this verse that God hasn't called us necessarily to to climb the ladder or to to achieve a great position of self-fulfillment. Nothing wrong if that happens. But he has called us to a sense of devotion and commitment to express our love to him in the way that we treat the people whom God has given us as employers. Now, one of the main ways you do that is through your diligence. Verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is the basis of what came to be known as the Protestant work ethic. It, it, it used to be that you could recognize someone's faith by the kind of commitment and integrity with which they approach their job. That, that, that distinction is not quite so clear anymore. But it, it, it used to be, again, that people would, would see someone working and they would say, this per- it doesn't seem to matter whether, whether like, people are watching him or, or people are seeing what she's doing. Like, they are pouring their, themselves into this job with a kind of dedication and an attention to, to detail and, and commitment that seems to indicate something about what's going on in their life. And, and in fact, that's exactly what's happening in this verse. Probably nobody expressed this better than Martin Luther King Jr. He, he had a vision for, we, we know his vision for, for human rights. His vision for work was powerful and it was profoundly biblical. He, the things that he said about work were, they honestly, in 2018, they sound foreign, I think. When we I hear the messages that people give to uh, young people today about work. They tend to be about following your dream and maximizing your potential and don't let anything stand in your way. Those are the kinds of messages I hear people in our society communicating to young people about work. Listen to what Martin Luther King Jr. said to uh, a group of uh, students at Barrett Junior High School. He said, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived, lived a great sweeper of streets. And those words sound foreign to us. There's no talk of chasing the dream and climbing the ladder. And there's nothing wrong if, that, if God does that in your life. There's nothing, nothing no reason to, to uh, feel badly about that or make excuse. But here the appeal is a genuinely biblical one to see the job that God has given me today as an opportunity to express my love to the Savior who has redeemed me. And I, I can express that through my devotion, through my commitment, my integrity, my dedication. So I guess we've got to ask, has anyone compared you to Michelangelo in your work lately? Are you like the Shakespeare of office workers or the, the Beethoven of teachers? Like, have you ever, have you done something lately that you think, I think maybe 
the angels in heaven are kind of stopping and taking notice because I'm giving my all to this and I'm doing it for not myself, not my career, not my advancement. I'm doing this out of love for my Savior. You turn your work into an act of worship when you show devotion even to, to employers who aren't worthy of it. And we discredit God and our faith when we don't, frankly. So devotion to those who are unworthy of it is one way we, we turn our work into an act of worship. It gives us another way. Now turning from the employees to the employers, to the managed, to the managers. It says we, we, we learn to show fairness even in an unfair system. Uh, as you look at this passage, you realize that God gives Christians positions of authority and influence for a reason. There is a purpose. God has a plan. And it's not primarily re related to our comfort, our affluence, or our advancement. And again, we're not saying that any of those things are necessarily wrong. Just that's not the primary purpose. God places us where he places us because he has an assignment for us there. He entrusts us with authority so that we can show fairness even in an unfair system. We're hit by that in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul calls for masters to treat their bondservants justly. Now, Paul has already modeled this in the letter because when you see other letters written out in, the, in the Roman world outside of Christianity, they would often have these instructions, but there wouldn't be any instructions to the servants. They would only be directed to the slave owners. They, they, were, they were often, you'd have many, many philosophers of the day, for instance, would write to the slave owners about how to handle your slaves, how to deal with your servants. But Paul changes that by first addressing the servants and investing their work with dignity, Inve investing their work with a sense of honor and saying, where you are right now doing exactly what you're doing, you can glorify God in that position. So he's already invested those servants with dignity. Now he calls on the employers to do the very same thing. To treat someone justly, as it says here, is to do the right thing in your interactions with them. To treat them well, to treat them honestly, to treat them as you would want to be treated if you were in that situation. It's a call to bring our faith into how we interact with those whom God has given us responsibility for. So you show your employees fairness through your justice. You also show your employees fairness through your generosity. In verse 1, when Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, the word that he uses for fairly there is a, a kind of a shocking one given the context. Kind of a surprising one, because it's a word that means with equality, with, with equity, with, with a sense of, uh, of, of balance and evenness. And it would have been a shocking challenge to first century slave owners. Many of them would have seen their servants as nothing more than tools, instruments to get something done, ways to serve them. Servants could often be treated as less than human and certainly of less worth than the lofty owners. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, that has to change. Has to be a change in your attitude. 
has to be a leveling of the playing field. He, he doesn't here call for a revolution. He doesn't call for uh, an, an, immediately, an immediate dismantling of the system. What he instead does is he infuses that system with values that would, over time, cause it to be dismantled from the inside out. In calling for the slave owners to treat your slaves with equality, he calls not for the entire system to be dismantled all of a sudden. He says, you start with your part. You start with your part. You take responsibility for where you can have influence, where you have some sense of authority over, and you level the playing field there. You create equality and justice there with the understanding that as that took place, that that would spread and eventually lead to the equalizing of, of a system. That was 2,000 years ago. We still are struggling with trying to find equality in the workplace, aren't we? There, there are still great injustices that are, uh, are taking place, and, and we still find our, ourselves in systems and companies that are unfair, structures that we don't have control over, and yet, God's word says, you take responsibility for the little piece of property that God has given you authority and influence over. You, you bring justice and equality and fairness to that part that you can change, that part where you can influence. Many ways you can do that. But it starts by asking the question, all right, what's my part? What's my, where, where's my area of authority and influence? What role can I play in affecting change here? And sometimes it starts with just very small things, beginning to treat people with justice, beginning to treat people with uh, love and a sense of fairness, being able to treat people more humanely. I'm not sure if you caught in the news uh, some time back a young man by the name of Joey Pruzak. He wasn't the kind of guy that got noticed. He wasn't the kind of guy that would normally be treated with a lot of, of honor or respect. He was a 19-year-old working the cash register at Dairy Queen when uh, on one of his shifts, he saw a blind man who was in the line drop a $20 bill. Amazingly or not, uh, the customer in line behind this blind man very quickly and quietly bent down, picked up the 20, put it in her pocket. Joey sees all of this going down and says, I got to step in and do something. So he goes and he confronts the woman and he said, I'm sorry, but you took the, 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 this man's $20 bill. Please return it. He confronts her and she is just as... Uh, hard and stubborn and says, no, that's, that's my money. She, she, she refuses to give it back. Joey doesn't cause a scene, but instead takes $20 out of his own wallet, puts it in the man's hand. He goes back to his shift. Nothing more is said. Nothing more is done. There's a customer in line who saw all of this take place and decided to write a letter to Dairy Queen head office explaining what... what what uh, had been seen and, and just how touched uh, he'd been by it. Two days later, 
Warren Buffett, who owns a company that owns Dairy Queen, called up Joey Pruzak and invited him to the next investors meeting. Warren Buffett's estimated at about $70 billion net worth. It would have been very easy for him to say, guys like Joey Pruzak are just, they're kind of in a different league than me. I don't, I don't have time to, 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 to place a phone call to him. We're making big decisions about, about big things in our company. We don't have time to invite people like him to our investors meeting. But he chose to not do that. He chose to lay, level the playing field and said, he did something that's worthy of recognition. He deserves a place at this, at this table, uh, if, if anyone does, and, and chose to honor him, chose to, to respond to him with uh, a sense of, of recognition, treating him with a, a humanity that often we miss, frankly. And so I want to ask you this morning as you kind of reflect on this passage and this call to treat people justly and fairly, do you do that? Do you, do you treat people with a sense of equality? Do you, do you look at the, the area that you are responsible for, the people that you can influence? And is there a sense of trying to bring your faith to bear on your little piece of real estate? Even if, the, even if the structure's unfair, the company's unfair, the, 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 there's lots that you can't control, what can you control and are you having the influence that God wants you to have there? When we do those kinds of things and we ask those kinds of questions, we have an opportunity to turn our work, stuff that we do, into an act of worship. And so we've seen Paul address first the employees, then the employers, trying to bring our faith to bear on what we do. But sometimes, maybe you're still asking, how do I do that? Where do I get that? Where does that come from? And, and so our final point comes out of our passage today is we can turn our work into an act of worship when we begin working for the Lord and not for people. It's who, it's that question of who we're working for, who is motivating the things that we're, do, that, that we're doing, becomes kind of the, the hub or the, the engine for all of the things that we've been mentioning this morning. Work becomes worship when we work for the Lord and not for people. And this is arguably the big point of this passage, and it's everywhere in, in our text today. Uh, when he addresses the servants uh, in verse 22, Paul says, Obey in everything. And then he describes what that means. And at the end, he says, fearing the Lord. And the idea is that that healthy sense of reverence towards God should motivate all of the other things that we do. It should change the way that we approach our work. Then in verse 23, when he tells them to work heartily, he adds, as for the Lord and not for men. Many of us feel as if we're going to work for people that we don't respect. And if we don't respect the people that we go to work for, we don't really feel like getting up in the morning. Or we kind of just feel, as long as I give like the bare minimum, that, that should be kind of enough. As long as I don't get caught, 
get a little alarm system, you know, to, to wake me when, the, when, when my supervisor comes along, surely that's good enough because he's not worth it. She's not really a great, great employer anyway. Imagine coming from that mindset and to be told that Jesus Christ is your motivation. He's the one that's supposed to be motivating the work that you do. Picture the impact it must have had for a first century slave to be told in verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. And then turn around and in chapter 4, verse 1, to hear this, now the slave owner is being addressed and they're told, you also have a master in heaven. You didn't get off the hook because you're kind of a big shot in Roman society. You're, you're not kind of treated different in God, God's kingdom. No, he says, you also have a master in heaven. We're all on a level playing field here and we will all report to the God who is over us. And so you may not find any motivation in serving your employer. They not, frankly, they might not be worthy of your respect, but there is a Savior who has called you who is. He is worthy of your respect. He is worthy of your devotion. And the call is not to go to work for yourself not to go to work for your career, not to go to work for people's applause and recognition and the promotions and the accolades. You go to work for the Lord with your eyes on Him out of a gratefulness for what He's done in your, your life and with a sense of a desiring to bring glory to Him by the way that you work. I want you to see what Paul says when he writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 of that letter. He gives instructions about work, and he says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. It's very similar to, to our passage today. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And then he gives the reason. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word adorn here is like decoration. You can make the gospel appear more beautiful by the way that you live, by the way that you work. When you bring an attitude of humility and dedication and devotion to the work that you do, you make the gospel more beautiful. You reflect its beauty in your life. And so... The, the light can shine more, more brightly for others. And the promise is that when you do that, employer may not notice it, your customers may not give you any appreciation, but the, the encouragement is the Lord notices it. He not only notices it, but he rewards it. In verse 24, it says, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. But it's also for, followed by a warning in verse 25. The warning is it will also be paid back for the wrong that we do. When we contribute to the injustice in, in our workplaces, when we fail to treat people with the humanity that they deserve and the dignity that they deserve, God will hold us to, a, hold us to account. And so the, the picture is that Jesus will be the final judge of our work. 
It's not judged by your bank account. It's not judged by your promotions, your bonuses, how far you climb the ladder. The ultimate evaluation and judgment on your work will be made by the Lord and will be made by his standard. He's the one whose approval we seek. He's the one who we are seeking to bring pleasure to when we bring ourselves to our work. And I think one of the greatest tests of that, how we can often see, I'm not sure if I'm doing this for the Lord or for people, for my own recognition. You know when you find out what, who you're actually going to work for? You find out when you do your hardest and you get nothing in return from people, right? Then it becomes really clear who you did it for. I, I read this week of Karen Weiss's experience in taking her church youth group to serve in a inner city soup kitchen. They washed dishes, they doled out beans, mashed potatoes, long line of homeless men. And as they did so, people seldom made eye contact. Maybe a grumbled grumbled word of, you know, almost an uh, inaudible, thank you. That's about all they got. And afterwards, the, the pastor debriefed with them. And he said, I'd like you to tell me about your work. Tell me, tell me how, it went with, how it went today. Tell me how you felt about it. And nobody wanted to talk. Nobody wanted to say anything about what they were really thinking about the day. And then finally, one, one young woman said, well, I didn't really like being here. I guess I wanted, to be, I guess I wanted them to be more grateful. And... Karen Weiss says, I was just cringing inside when she said that because I was feeling exactly the same thing. And then I started to think what it must be like to be served a plate full of charity from a bunch of suburban teenagers who, as she put it, were dabbling in do-gooding. Those words of thanks and, and appreciation wouldn't come quite so quickly to... Uh, quickly to mind. But it teaches you who who it is that you're working for. And you and I get tests like that all the time, don't we? Tests of who it is am I going to work for today? Who did I really put in that extra effort for? For me? Or was it for him? I've heard another person describe this same principle by saying, serving isn't the work we do for people who appreciate our service. Serving is the work that we do for the Lord when people treat us like servants. That's when we really see it. That's when our heart becomes clear. And so my question to you this morning is, who do you go to work for? Is it for you? Do you go to work for recognition? Do you go to work so that people notice you? Do you go to work for people to appreciate you? Nothing wrong with it if those things happen. That's wonderful. But the fact is, they often don't happen, right? And if that's our motivation, many days you and I are not going to get out of bed and go into work with the right kind of attitude. The Bible calls us to work for the Lord, to seek his pleasure in what we do, to show devotion even to pl- into employers who aren't worthy of it, to show fairness even in a system that is unfair, and to seek to make our work, what we do, 
an act of worship, an act of where we express our gratefulness for all that our Savior has done for us at the cross. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to worship you with our work, but we need your help. We need your help because it's hard. We often feel beaten down, underappreciated. We often feel that people don't notice, people don't care. So Father, help us to put our eyes on Jesus Christ. Help us to look to him. And I pray that you would give us strength to glorify you in what we do. And give us, Father, the wisdom to know how we can represent you well. For we ask you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.